I'm Jan Sukfong Lee. And I'm Dina Del Vucchia. And this is Can't Lit. Do, 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 do. Can't Lit. Talk about books and stuff. Hello, and welcome to Can't Lit, the podcast I tried to record, but then my Wi-Fi went out. Thanks for showing up. <laughs> you little shit. Um, We're here. I'm here. Yeah. This is Dina. Jen's here. Hi, Jen. Hi, Dina. Hi. You look so glamorous. Oh, I have to take my mom out for brunch later. And if I don't look nice, she gets really personally offended. You're wearing just like <laughs> such a, a beautiful, creamy sweater. You have a I big just got ring this. on. It's incredible. I just got this from a consignment store because I'm very into the yeah, circular economy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know either. All right. And as always, an incredible guest, someone we are extremely happy to have here, the writer of (laughs) Half Bats in White Regalia, Cody Catano. Hello, Cody. Thank you for being here. This is a real treat. Hi, Dina. Hi, Jen. Thank you for having me. Yay! We're so excited. We're Only the best excited. title of a book in the last 10 years in Canlet, honestly. It's so good. <laughs> Thank you. It was, uh, I had a few titles that I was working on over the like, nine years I was working on the book. But then as soon as I thought of this one, I was like, that's it. That's i got to go with that. And, uh, Lee Miracle, who I worked with on the on the book in uh, twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen, she was like, "That's your promise to the reader," you know. And I always I like that I like that phrase that it's like a prom, you know. So the title is it's your promise to your reader and what experience they're going to get. Yeah, Lee Miracle, always so wise. <laughs> I, did, I did. I actually did get to work with her right before she died. Actually, and she was. Uh, I got to. Stacey May Fowles and I got to edit an essay of hers and um yeah and then her edits I tell the story a lot can't let's heard it but we'll we'll I'll say it again is that you know we'd send her an email with like edits in it and she'd reply no and then that was it (laughs) (laughs) and we're like fair that's fine (laughs) she was really nice to us actually she just didn't like our edits (laughs) I mean, everyone can't be expected to like all edits. No, or any. It's fine. That's true. Sorry, you were going to say she was. Oh, she was like a, she was real tough to work with at times. Not like personally or anything, but she would just, she like knew how to call you on your your BS. Um, I've said that before too. Like she was really good at like, sussing out what you were trying to say to her and whether what you were saying was what you genuinely wanted to say, or if it was kind of like a weaselly answer. And I always, at the time it would be like, you know, stressful because you'd be in her office or at her place and she would ask you the same question like six times in a row until you gave her an answer she liked. But I, (laughs) I really appreciated that, you know, with time. And it was a very, some people who got mentors in the program, they had like very handholdy mentors who would like 
tell them to scrap their book and write it all over again, or, you know, uh, very hands off who didn't correspond with them at all, but she was like the perfect, you know, Yoda style person for, for me. Oh, I love that. I feel, I I, I feel like I could feel her in the book. Oh, we should, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are. Okay. Dina. First we're going to, you, you ask me, ask me, ask me, ask me. What's ask happening, me. Dina? I, um, honestly, I'm just really trying to like get my shit organized. Um, which is so much like work. Like stuff or like poop? S- <laughs> always poop. I, I mean, listen, <laughs> we really believe in having good shits here at Can't um, it's really important to us that people are experiencing the best gastrointestinal health they can experience. But I'm talking about stuff. I'm talking about just the detritus of human life, <laughs> like all the things. I feel like ever since I moved into this apartment because we were renovated, I just spent a lot of time like, you know, you're packing stuff and you're like, well, well, think about this later. And that was five years ago. So, um, yeah, it's time. And I'm trying to do a book call at once a year, but it's hard. Um, but yeah, a friend of the podcast, Jessica Delisle has been helping me. She has an organizing, in, in addition to being an amazing musician, uh, podcaster, just hilarious, great person. She has this organizing business and it's so amazing. And I, I'm already feeling just so much better and working with her is fun, but it's not, you know, it's not like HGTV, um, which I notoriously hate, but it's, yeah, I don't know. I'm just like finding new ways to use my stuff, moving stuff around. She got me this great desk that I'm currently using from another person that is. Oh, you have a desk now. That's awesome. Yeah. It's an old sewing desk. And I've been wanting for years and years to put my Nona's old sewing machine somewhere because it's super one of those big heavy ones that came in a big case and uh, now it lives here and then I just flip it down into the desk and it's hidden right now while my laptop is on top of it so I'm like living the Loredana Del Bucchia lifestyle with my with my desk yeah and I can touch her beautiful sewing machine even though I will never be as good at her she was pure precision I am more I'm more chaos bull in a china shop style human um but yeah so organizing my stuff it's like truly my sister all i'm so excited to organize all my um gardening and uh house plant stuff after we get off here i'm gonna like go through all my little pots and dirt literal dirt yeah My sister uses my grandma's sew, uh, sewing desk as a desk too, sewing table. Oh, there's this one is awesome. It has a tiny little stool that slides into it on casters, and then you just like slide it out. <laughs> it's fucking delicious. And then yeah, it just closes up all tiny when you're not using it. It's great. Perfect. Even though I have not heard from the very intimidating, intense. Uh, community garden board and I'm worried they're gonna like kick us out for some reason I don't know they can don't they do even, that I don't know 
Do they know that I'm always drinking beer when I'm watering? I don't know. I don't know. But Is there a rule against drunken watering? No, I just, they've recently got kind of draconian about things and they're sending out these, I'm sure I've talked about it, these long spreadsheets with plot numbers and then next to it, like all the things you have to do to fix up your plot. It's so upsetting. And literally all we're trying to do is like, plant some flowers, grow some nice food. And they're like, you have too many weeds. And it's like, that was a heat dome. Like eat garbage. Like, I don't want to hear about this. This is terrible. <laughs> anyway. So I'm really hopeful. I'll we'll still get to keep this garden plot, but. You've been there for years. They can't kick you out now. I will be furious. I planted ferns because I was supposed to finish my volunteer hours and I got COVID, so I couldn't do it. And then when I finally had time to volunteer, it was during um, the atmospheric river and I was planting ferns for two hours. And I was like... Is that, was that okay? Can you do that in an atmospheric it river? It was awful. I don't know. I did love it. <laughs> but that's uh, how much I care. Anyway, Jen, what's <laughs> happening with you? Um, I did the big, like, Vancouver Writers Fest inside event at the public library last <laughs> week, which was really fun and lovely. I did wear my red coveralls that make me look like I'm here to fix your car or give you the literary event of your life. You, you decide. Yeah, but, like, for the first time in a really long time, someone mistook me for Sookie and Lee of Much Music VJ and I can't and uh and like definitely not the opera fame and like someone literally said to me so you're not doing DNTO anymore right like because you're not you're not doing TV you haven't been on much music in a long time and I was like are you talking about Sookie and Lee (laughs) and then I thought see you know when I was younger I used to just go with it and pretend I was that person just to fuck people up and I didn't do it this time because I was out of practice it's been years since someone mistook me for her. And then I said, do you mean Sookie and Lee? And the person looked so mortified. And then I felt bad. But then I'm like, I don't, you should be mortified, right? Absolutely. Anyway, so it was just really funny. And I was like, this is something that I need to, I texted Dina. I was like, Dina. So- <laughs> yeah, I got an immediate notification. I'm on the immediate Jen notification list. Oh my gosh. But then, but then I did get word that Anna Maria Tremonti formerly of The Current, is reading my book, which is really exciting to me because I love Anna Maria Tremonti. She's on a level for me with, like, Christiane Amanpour and, like, I, I like female journalists who... Um, so the most famous thing Anna Maria Tremonti ever did was she did, a, did an interview on the radio with Henry Kissinger and she was asking him really pointy questions. I don't even know about what because he's done a lot of shady things and he ripped off his mic and stormed out. So she's my hero. <laughs> I mean, as she should be. That's fantastic. Also, yeah. he's not dead yet. He's alive? He's still alive. Is he 100? He's probably like a fucking vampire or something, and he we had to kill him with a steak or something. Like, no, I this don't can't know. be right. He's like older than my mom. My mom's like 84. No, he's what? What extremely old. He could have like fathered your mom. Like, that's how old he is. Yeah, he's got to be like 100. Cody's looking it up. How old is he? He's 99. Oh, my God. Is he in good health? I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, 
not spiritually. So do you know, like when they when they do this every year, there's like the world's oldest living person because like mm-hmm. they do it, it's a different mm-hmm. one every year usually, and it's usually like a tiny, cute, shrunken like Japanese woman who's like 115, yeah, and she's best. like wearing a toque and and she's like probably never done anything bad in her life, and she's just like I drink a lot of green tea, and then like that's it. I don't want Henry Kissinger to be that. That's not fair. <laughs> it's awful. It's awful. So rude. Uh, Cody, what is happening with you? A, a lot. Um, today's been good. This weekend's been great. Um, I've got a talk I got to give tomorrow um, that I've been prepping for. I was supposed to go to Amber McMillan's house yesterday night, but I had to prep for this on Monday and decided against it. And uh, things are good. I'm having a good time in Fredericton, as I was talking about earlier. It's a nice. It's a nice little city. Um, people are agreeable and <laughs> they're a little mousy at times. And the fucking weather, not to complain, because I know like in Manitoba is brutal right now and like up north. But coming from Toronto, which there's barely been snowfalls for years to a place where the snow is literally like banked high up. And you, one thing that pisses me off about the city, if I'm being honest, there's this, when I told people I was moving here, they were like, Oh, be ready for the winter. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And then (laughs) they were like, no, you're, you're going to need to like buy icebreakers. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And it's because the fucking city unless you're downtown, doesn't plow the sidewalks. There's no soul, there's no service that's been implemented so that you can walk. It's like not a walking city because it's iced out. So you have to get icebreakers to just like leave your house. And I don't drive. So for me, it's like, what's an icebreaker? I'm from Vancouver. I don't even know what that is. (laughs) I, I think, I don't know if they're actually called icebreakers. I call them that because like the, I think it's. Is it Do they super, go on your shoes? Yeah, they're. Uh, I call them icebreakers because of the like, uh, Super Smash Bros. playable character. Yeah, uh, yeah, ice, yeah, yeah. Ice climb is called, but I've been calling them icebreakers. They're just they're like um, metal teeth that you can Cram- slip on any boot or shoe. Crampons? Are they called crampons? I think they're called crampons. Oh, yeah, crampons. <laughs> Crampons. Yeah, cramp, they're crampons. They're not icebreakers. Like, it's a word I really enjoy because it sounds like a cramping tampon. I agree. I was going to say <laughs> the exact same thing. That was exactly where my train of thought went. We share a brain. Oh, you. We're sharing yeah, a brain. Yeah, it's fine. For, We're sharing a brain yeah. right now. Yeah. For body humor. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, it is unfortunate when you're somewhere and you can't walk around you know I hate that a lot of places are not walking cities which I find really distressing yeah it's it's still doable like I have friends who walk the city a lot every day and there's lots of trails and stuff like they really tried to integrate the downtown into the lands and it's there's a bridge that people walk every day that takes you to the reserve on the North St. Mary's and it's cute. Um, 
part of me still really misses Toronto, my family and friends there and looking forward to going back this year in the summer. Are you going to, are you going to be in Fredericton for a while? Uh, till June, um, subletting my apartment there and moving back to, uh, I live in Witchwood Barnes area, which is like, um, on the North, uh, ish fringe of the city, I guess if there's like the trying to think in terms of like how to compare it to Vancouver, um, but I'm drawing a blank. Right you now. don't have but to. It's okay. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, there's a lot of like young upwardly mobile families and like a few immigrant hubs, but mostly young families, lots of strollers and it's cute. But, um, and most people who I'm friends with who moved to the city around the same time, everybody's slowly moving up and out of the downtown or like the little Portugal or wherever people lived for the 2010s. The slow gotta move, move of gentrification. You gotta move where, yeah. I mean, gentrification makes you move where you can afford to move. Yeah. I'm going to show you something, Cody. I don't know if you've seen, have you seen your book cover on a Kobo? There it is. Oh. <laughs> I want to get a Kobo so freaking bad. Which one is this? Is this waterproof? This one's waterproof. So. It's Libra, and uh, I love it. It saved my eyes. Uh, and Cody, I know you're an agent now, so you're reading a lot of manuscripts. And if this is this has saved my eyes for editing, actually, so highly recommend. Okay. You can put PDFs in them too, eh? Mm -hmm. You get the one with the pen. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna ask you something. Okay, so. I am sure everyone talks to you about this, but let's talk about the language in half bats in white regalia, which is one of the most exciting, fun things that I've, I love talking about like craft and writing style and voice and stuff. So I want to know when you were writing it, did it just start this way? This is the way you were writing it from the beginning. Well, that's a great question. And I think it's one that every writer plays around with and constantly has different answers to. Like I, in some ways, there were sentences that from like, I think the time I was 18, I had begun accumulating like bullet points. Sorry, I think my neighbor's like uh, breaking ice. To use That's stuff, great. Right? We <laughs> are happy to hear it. For all the, for the, for the, the listener, the for the listener. Um, so if you hear that, like, that's what that is, but yeah, there was sentences and like lines and like moments that I'd begun accumulating like journal style and just like putting in a doc and being like, and some of those were like sentences that just like really stuck out to me. And then others were more, uh, revised and refined and a big part of the process with not just, uh, this manuscript, but future ones too is paying a lot of great care and attention to the sentences and um, obviously the bigger stuff too, but um, it's so fun to wiggle around in a unit, like a sentence or a line in a poem and finding which words, you know, uh, intrinsically make that sentence, that sentence versus the words that 
maybe they belong to other sentences that are uh, neighbors of that sentence. And so constantly thinking of the reader, which I know that's another thing too. Some writers are like, I don't fucking care about the reader. <laughs> I, I just write for me. I write it, you know, I don't envision a readership or anything, which in some ways both paths are fruitful and uh, useful, but I, I don't know. I think, uh, I think a lot about like what it's like to read and that's what, you know, when I'm reading my own like draft in progress and I'm having fun writing it and like reading that line, I'd be like, fuck, that's a lot of, that's like, it was a lot of fun to write. And I hope that if I ever perform this, that someone will click with that moment, um, which they don't always, but yeah. So to answer your question, yes. And, but also like, no, because a lot of it took, mm-hmm. you know, quite a bit of exercise and, some stories in the book are years old. Like they had been, you know, uh, through multiple rounds of revision and going from through going through it, like syntactically was almost, and like the vocab was as important as the, like the extra diegetic and diegetic elements that are weaved throughout, you know, um, how to tell it. And that's, uh, there's a lot of choices you got to make. That's a really like, I love hearing people talk about word choice because I think that that's something we normally um, think about when we're writing poetry or, or when we're reading poetry. But I think that like in prose or in longer form work, like uh, the memoir that you wrote, like word choice is not something that I think we need, we think about enough. And like, this is something that like, as an editor, I'm always saying to people, this is not the right choice. Like this word is not the right choice and you have to find the right choice. So it's really like one time I said to an emerging author, you're going to have a draft where you're going to go through and, and question all of your word choices. And they, they looked like they wanted to murder me. And I'm like, no, <laughs> but like, <laughs> this is, this is how we make our books like amazing. And when I was reading through this and like looking at your word choices, which I was really exhilarated by it, it occurred to me often that you're writing a memoir where there are things that are potentially upsetting, right? Potentially upsetting for you as the author, but also for the reader. And I think the language does a really interesting sort of cocooning um, around those sort of scenes where things are, you know, they could be upsetting or like, you know, or traumatic or any of those things. And the language to me served a really interesting sort of like um, practical function in terms of like, you know, I get to read this language as the most exciting thing I've ever read. And right, this is a really this scene makes me really sad though. And it's interesting, like that play. Um, mm. I'm sure you already thought of that because you wrote it. <laughs> Sorry, my neighbor is again, there, there's some, some combo outside. I don't know. I'm going to move the, yeah, I think it's important to, uh, especially like if you're writing any kind of nonfiction that is really hefty. Um, you gotta, you gotta, be willing to play ball with the, you know, fact that people are going to pick this up and they're going to be bringing all their own experiences and their own sort of world with them. Um, and I knew that it would be uh, hard for some people, particularly if they have similar experiences. But I knew also too, like when I see or read a book and when I read like nonfiction, that was really, um, that aligned with my own understanding of the world. I loved it. And I was so delighted and like 
overjoyed with the that experience and yeah you gotta I don't know you gotta be I think especially in like long form work like have it should be fun to try and write it no matter the the content or experience like you should have should be a like if if it's not fun which I you hear writers say like oh writing is the worst fucking thing in the world like can't stand it it's so painful and like as an agent I'm because I have this weird duality of being, you know, and same, you know, Jen, with you too, being an editor and a writer, you bring this lens to it that I'm constantly like with any of the writers I work with. Um, I'm constantly trying to, I think he stopped, uh, constantly trying to stimulate them and excite them about drafts. Cause yeah, you get to that draft where you're like, fuck this. Like, why am I such a doofus? Um, and I think, so I've heard this advice from other people too, not just writers, but like artists in general, is if you go back and you read something that you wrote and you don't like it, that's a pretty good sign because it means that your sensibilities and your your own comprehension of your own work is improving and you are improving with by extension rather than if you, you know, I think you should still be happy to go back and read something and be like, you know what, for what it was, I'm, if I walk away from that, it's okay, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I loved what you said, just to jump back to the previous question, um, because this is something I was thinking about as well. The book has energy. Like there is so much energy in this book. And that's something I always really respond to. Um, And I think it's voice and I think it's tone. But also what you were saying about you know, if I perform this, how is that going to be? And I think people don't often think about that part of it either when they're in the writing process. Um, And I love that, you know, that clearly must have come into your brain as you were doing this. You're like, well, I got to think about not just a reader, but also an audience of any kind experiencing this book and what that will look like. Um, so in addition to the, the language, there's also this voice that you, um, this, an extremely consistent voice. Like there was almost no escaping it. It's in my head. (laughs) I'm thrilled. I'm not upset about it, but, um, I don't know. I, I'm always interested to hear what writers think about in terms of a voice. And especially when it's something that is nonfiction. That is, you know, memoir. Yeah. It's so fun to go to a guy. My introduction to like the writing world in Toronto was like going to a lot of readings and like book launches and like those weren't established writers. Most of them, a lot of them had, some of them may have been writing for decades, um, but a lot of them were just writers by, happenstance and despite that a lot of them would have this particular way of reading their their shit and I I love that so much I liked that because then when you see people who are falling asleep when they're reading their own work it really makes you appreciate the ones who take the time at least to recognize that um while it's a very personal and intimate and lonely by uh some ways art form it's also one that should have an appreciation of of, a, of an audience or a reader of that other person um 
you know, I think that like even um, subtle winks all the time, you know, to a, a reader can can really go a long way. And yeah, I don't know. I've always had fun doing fun doing readings. I just did one for the fiddlehead. Um, and it was, it was a fiction, like from a new manuscript I'm working on. And it was, uh, the, the register of the character was very particular. And I like, you know, I'm imagining this person and what they're doing and to occupy that, even though it's not me, it's still, I'm trying my hardest to bring a level of energy, um, that just naturally is that for better or worse is there, you know, um, but it's not just for writing. It's also like you got to bring that energy to like everything you do. If you have it, if you got the spoons, as they say, which, you know, not everyone does all the time, but um, trying to en engage with the world that way, because it's such a gift to actually friggin' even be geeking out about this stuff right now or mm -hmm. ever. We're very lucky. And I don't think I ever forget that. We are lucky. It's such a privilege yeah. to be writers, honestly. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, even I this, like, every time we record this podcast, I'm like, oh, my God, I just had the best conversation. I'm so happy. <laughs> it's it's great. Yeah. And then the two of you, too, like, you know, getting to edit. Of course, there's a fucking cool car alarm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's, it's probably like a shitty Honda Fit or something. Like, it's probably not even a cool car. You know what? No. <laughs> I want it to be like a shitty Tesla. I respect the Honda Fit more than I do whatever respect this is. The Honda Fit. Also, uh, the Honda call... Fit is very important to me because I'm part of the car co-op here. And I always, there's two Honda Fits and they're the closest. And that's always what I drive. I love the Honda Fit. They're also in my car co-op. And it's I call best. it the proletariat chariot. Absolutely. It. it is the proletariat <laughs> chariot. Jen, you're so correct. I drove it two times back and forth last year to visit my parents. Honda Fit took me eight hour drive up multiple mountain ranges. It was a-okay. It's reliable. It's economical. It's easy to drive. What more do you want? You know what? And <laughs> you know what sounds great coming out of those speakers? Bob Seeger, baby. <laughs> Because if it were me, it would just be Rihanna, like, 24-7. Rihanna's on my playlist. I have a road trip playlist that's called Chaotic Road Trip Mix because it's just all the songs I like. They don't make any fucking sense together. But I'm just like, no, these songs are good, and I won't get tired of listening to them. Anyway. <gasps> okay. Yeah. Sorry. Back to I, the important I, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask because like one of the things that I struggle with with memoir is that um, a lot of sort of people giving me their feedback after reading the book lately has been how much they hate my mother from the book. Yeah, which is like not what I was going for. Like I, I feel like I've been trying to extend her a lot of empathy and, and try to understand. And I, when I was reading Half Bad's, your book as well, I think you extend a tremendous amount of empathy to your parents. I think you're trying really hard to write them in a way that is with love and affection. Um, and I, but I wonder, did you also get that from people like that? Oh, you're, they're mad at your parents because that doesn't square. I don't think with the way you wrote them because you do give them a lot of space 
to be full humans. Like they're not just, you know what I'm saying? Well, that's the thing is I'm not, I wasn't, it wasn't, uh, like I wasn't trying hard to portray them as, you know, agreeable people. And it's so interesting to me, the reception of, uh, this book that I've received. Um, usually people are excited about the language and they'll, you know, that it's a debut book or whatever, and they're happy to talk to me about that, which I appreciate. Um, and then other times it's positioned as like a work of testimony or sort of capturing a particular worldview, which I'm fine with. But then there's this, there's this stream of readership, which I'm obviously super grateful for, but just going out into the world, going to different parts of the country and whatever. And people have this, this like, oh, I just want to hug you. Oh, you know, it's just so, it's just so amazing that you're alive and you made it. You're just such a, you know, you're one of the good ones. And to me, it's, it's, it's not something that infuriates me too much or, or it just, it's interesting to me because it says more about the person than it does anything to do with my world. And I yes. actually think more people like me in my world. And that's one of the assertions that I've always maintained is that there's more people who grew up like I did than the other way around. And that's what the world, and at least the dominant sort of world wants to uh, suggest and, and argue is that, well, no, you're actually the particular. And it's because very, very rarely do we get these kinds of people. And very honestly, like, cause it's, I don't know. I think it has something to do maybe with, I think other art forms, it's, it's easier to like, like with music, for instance, I feel like there's a lot of people who can write from their particular register and worldview and it makes sense, but I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong too, but I've always had a, a, a bit of a wink at those kinds of people. And they're usually a certain, I'm not going to identify them feature wise, but it's usually a certain kind of, a person who has a certain kind of age, a certain kind of generational uh, position. And yeah, I, I think as much as it is inevitable that that's going to be a big part of anyone's readership in North America, let alone Canada, I'm also thinking about another kind of reader and mm-hmm. I've always read that reader because, you know, um, not just with my own shit, but with the writers I work with, like, you know, um, I'm very excited by the readers out there who don't always get to see themselves in book. And like, I know that urgency of representation was a particular, uh, force in the 2010s and even the 2020s. And it, it's kind of a, a net, it's fundamentally a net good, um, that we're seeing more particulars about, uh, different stories that don't always get out there. And I love that. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's good to try and make it uh, something that more people are into. And that's my favorite thing is when I get people who are like, I don't read books, but I loved your shit. I loved your book. You know? <laughs> Isn't that the best? And it's awesome. Yeah. It's yeah. really cool. And I will say that I think that like in Canada, the readership, you're always going to get a certain kind of reader, a certain kind of book clubby type of reader. Those are the people who buy a lot of books. But what's really exciting for me is when a book gets other kinds of readers, uh, attracts other kinds of readers, people who may not 
be, you know, who buy 50 books a year, a different kind of, um, when I just did that event on Wednesday, like this young Asian woman came up to me and was just like, I saw myself in your book so much. And I really felt like you were writing it for me. And I was like, Oh, that's the best thing I've ever heard because I was writing it for you. I was Mm -hmm. writing it for someone just like you, because I've often thought if this book had existed when I was 20, what difference would that have made like for me? So I think that like what you're saying about this book having different other kinds of readers is a really important aspect of that and the way that we, the way that you thought about it as you wrote it. I can see it in every line that you wrote though, that you were not writing for um, what we think of as a regular book reader in Canada, right? Well, in many ways it's also just, and I hate, I know how this sounds, ostensibly how it sounds, but like in many ways I was also, and I think this is what people mean when they say they don't pay attention to readership. In many ways I was just writing also for, the experience of writing it, like for the the actual pursuit of the story, um, both the capital and lowercase S story. And having uh, done that, I think, and for any writer who does that, who fully invests in their own, their own stuff, the readers who need this book will find it. And, you know, the people, the larger conversation you're in will allow your position to enter. Um, and yeah, I, I don't, uh, I think in some ways you could like, there was certainly people who I wasn't writing for. Um, but even then, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to exclude anyone. Mm-hmm. And I think the book, at least I hope it offers something for whoever picks it up. Um, some little, and I know it won't for everyone, you know, and that's, that's another thing is like, there are going to be people who don't get it. There are going to be lots of people who don't get it and you got to be okay with that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Cause I teach this, I teach a couple of comedy writing classes um, at a university and students are always asking questions like, you know, what is the perfect joke? And I'm like, I can't answer this question. <laughs> like I would love to be able to just tell you this. But, all, and, and a lot of questions about audience and, and appealing. And I just, I'm like, there is no universal audience. And the, the more we remember that, the better our work is going to be because it is truly impossible for every person that you want to reach to be connected to what you're doing. Or in this case, laughing at whatever it is that you think is really funny. And so... Of course, not everyone's going to be on board, but I think there genuinely is an audience for every work. I mean, yeah, we were talking about a real ding dong of a Canadian intellectual before we started recording and like, this guy's always on the bestseller list, you know? I have a question about the structure of the whole book because this book is linear but it's also not linear. Um, also, each chapter is so contained, yet I feel like each of them kind of purposely flows into the next in a way where I was really satisfied with the end of one, but then very ready to jump into the next. It felt sort of like I was um, binge reading or binging a prestige TV show where I was like, oh, what's going to happen? What, what will unfold um, and I think part of that was the language and 
obviously the energy, as I mentioned before, but what was your kind of process of structuring and revising and looking at these chapters as kind of these perfect containers? That's a great question. And I think a part of me, like it was really difficult to even try and not not poor me difficult but like it was it was really hard at first and i think it's hard for all people who have like big ambitious conceptually high concept projects that are like ruminating in your brain for all these years and like okay, one day i'm gonna like sit down and actually do this when i sat down to actually do it like even pre-writing school it was really hard to even know how to start it was such it was there was almost like too much and it was like a really messy room um and so I went through various uh, developments, um, failed developments too. There was a time I wanted to make it, and this is pre in the dream house, but I wanted to try and do like a choose your own memoir. And what that was leading me to was trying to like gamify the book in some way, like making it very, like you turn to this page and you'll get this thing and then you can turn to this page and this happens or you would die. Like I was trying to like make it very influenced by the games I liked. And, um, and then in some ways that just was too difficult. I didn't have enough of a sense of how to orient around that concept. And, um, and then reading in the dream house, I was like, Kate, that that's like a really well done version of it. Um, and really skillful. And then I think I wanted to do it linear. A lot of memoirs will have the writer writing from a, a later point by which they've, they're actually in, which obviously like I'm writing this, not trying to make it like Emma Donahue room where like the boy is so childlike that he his his uh, reliability or whatever is like not all there. But I did, I didn't want to make it one of those books that's like, okay, I'm writing because writing from like this point and I'm going to write everything up to this point again. I kind of wanted to keep it contained to this particular world. And that has a lot to do with the book existing within a larger group of books, a larger suite of books, um, you know, so that it sets the reader up nicely for the next one. And the chapter by chapter thing, I like, I like titles in naming and endings to chapters and like paying a lot of attention to tension. Um, so you're, when you're watching an episode of something, you're like super excited to keep going. That's not like people can make that a very cynical remark and be like, Oh, that's, that's paying too much to the consumption and the expendability of it. To me, it's just, no, it's just fun as a human to like be excited about the thing you're reading. So trying yeah. my best that's something that I talk about a lot is just the idea of books as entertainment and that we shouldn't try to take that away. Like why should I not enjoy and be excited and be entertained by a book the same way that I would another piece of media? Um, which brings me to the other thing, which you just alluded to, which is the video games, which are impossible to ignore. They're like this grounding force in the book that reappear. And you were just talking about kind of trying to gamify the original draft and then that not really being what ends up happening. So then how do you view them now in the way they're integrated into the book? 
you touch on a really, I think, fun and fundamental part of the manuscript. And I always, in some way, wanted, because they were just a part of my upbringing, um, you know, and I've, I wrote this thing for the globe about them and a lot of the re- globe reader responses were like, this is dangerous. Like kids should in the same day. I think a piece about being outside came out like an op-ed about someone going outside and like how being outside is actually more healthy, especially given the pandemic we've been cooped in. Um, so juxtaposed between those two, it kind of doesn't seem good, but I, yeah, they inform in some ways they inform like the language and, um, they are sort of a way that my brother and I have bonded um, over the years. It was kind of like an, it was like a nice way to keep ourselves like invested in a story. Um, and we tried yeah, as kids, we like would rent and get games and playing them and just picking them up in the sort of novel experience of just like picking it up and very unassumingly not knowing because now like everything when we look up on the internet and stuff, you kind of like can get a whole understanding of what the experience is going to be like. We, my, in my sister-in-law and I were like looking up shows uh, to watch with my nephews. And there's this website now, I don't know what it's called, but we were like thinking like, Oh, should we watch the predator movie? Cause my nephews like that stuff. And my brother and I like that stuff. And we were like trying to find movies without nudity and, or whatever in them. And like the show, the website had, all the attributes of it listed, like this specific thing's going to happen, this specific thing's going to happen, and um, sort of giving a, a, a heads up that, you know, um, a contextual note for the experience you're going to have. And um, gaming, like in being a kid in the, the knots, like a lot of your experience was just like sort of running into it, seeing what it was, and not really knowing what it meant or what it exists, the larger cultural context it existed in. You kind of just or they're doing it automatically. Um, so yeah, games are, they, I think it's, it's always fun when writers play, they writing. It's, it's so dope because writing can have like, we each bring our own sensibilities and knowledges and understanding. So it's always fun when, you know, like a like Vincent Lamb or whatever, he's like a doctor. So he brings that whole context into his writing or, you know, um, like uh, Tommy Orange and there, there, he's got this, so many specific things about Oakland that are very context specific and books can be great vehicles for all that info to, to transfer. Um, and games in some way, there was a lot of cultural stuff I wanted to try and talk about through them. And even in this new book I'm working on, there's, uh, the the two main characters started a Halo 3 clan together and I'm trying to write about clan, and being a bunch of nerds online in the early, like the 2007, like Halo 2 era, um, Halo 3 era and Forge mode, you know, um, and sort of like that's a concept that could sound really whatever to someone, but perhaps the novel could be a fun way to play around with that. Um, I loved school. it. I loved that. I loved it. Like, I mean, Jen and I both are very pop culture forward, obviously, in our work, so... Um, we're here for it. Cool. Yeah. Also, you don't have to play video games to read and figure it out. <laughs> no. Well, and one Which of the I greatest, don't. and then like one of the greatest parts too is 
kind of showing the idea of, you know, the, the virtual narrative or experience world versus reality is the drum lessons and being really good at rock band, but then being like, Oh, I have to have, get some real drumsticks. I have to actually try and do this thing in a real way. And it doesn't, but obviously, but then you are good at it. And so you see that, you know, the virtual, the simulation, whatever is, it did prepare you <laughs> in a strange way. And I think that the way you do comment on things through the games in a, in a, I don't know, in a really interesting way. And a lot of the media, um, I don't know. Of course I'm drawn to that. It's, it's very, you know, and, sh- showing of that time, but also like of your experience. And what's disorienting too, is so many people in North America in particular, their baseline culture, their world has been flattened by the Western accessible pop culture. And so many people, like so much of our narrative and conversation is about sort of filtering our historical and communal experiences through those things um, and trying to understand ourselves through this thing that is essentially a com- like a lot of them are commodities and based in being purchasable items. And so, um, and that's, a, that's like an intrinsic part of it. Like a lot of the Western culture, which so many families sacrificed everything they had, like, you know, a lot of immigrant stories are, well, it was much better than what we had previously you know, if you go, like, if we stayed there, there was very little for us to have. Um, but in order to in turn be that, you know, American or that Canadian or that citizen of this new world, you had to forego in some ways. Not everyone did, but a lot of people did. Um, so you get this weird homogenous assimilation of, like, all the different, you know, the melting pot, as the cliche goes, but... Um, yeah, it was uh, a big part of my upbringing was like the Western TV shows, movies, pop culture, all that stuff was like how I understood a big part of my life. I mean, same. <laughs> Who would I be without it? I don't know. Who would like, I mean, I wonder sometimes because like I'm at an age, you know, where television was king for uh, pop culture for me, but without the ubiquity of like something, whether it's television or video games or whatever it is that, you know, the world is into at a time, what do people become? Like, I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, as someone who is writing a long poem about my relationship with television and my brain and like, I don't know, it's a lot to consider. Like, what do you do? Look at the, look at a fire. Like, you know, hang out with some goats. Like, what do you do? Like, I not do that... want to hang out with goats. Hold on. Yeah, I have a good track. story about a about a goat that I can tell you another time. Okay. <laughs> What's that? What's the story? Okay, the story is. Thank you was... for asking the important questions, Cody. Okay, Jen, I was in a time. Zoom meeting with the guy who handles my financial stuff because I'm a organized person. His name is Bjorn, lovely man, and he was in his in an office in his house. And then he said, so he's got four kids, four sons. His wife recently passed away, actually. And um, I was saying to him, like, how has the Zoom meetings been with all the, you know, the boys in the house? He's like, well, I was in a Zoom meeting 
with a client the other day. And as I'm talking, my son walks past me outside in the window, leading a goat. <laughs> and I said, and I said, so what apparently had happened was that his, his kid was doing some campus joke. He goes to UBC and his friend went to a goat farmer and bought a goat, which by the way, should not be this easy to buy a goat. Mm-hmm. The farmer put the goat in the car. The kid drives back to campus, realizes he has no fucking idea what to do with this goat. So then he, he gets to school and then Bjorn's son says, my aunt owns a ranch in the Cowichan Valley. I'll take the goat and maybe she'll come and pick it up. So he did the responsible thing. He loaded, then they loaded the goat into Bjorn's son's car. Bjorn's son drives it to their house in Tawasin, which is like a suburb. And um, there's nowhere for the goat to go. They just live in a regular sized house with a regular sized yard, except Bjorn had built a yurt for himself after his wife had passed away because he really felt like he needed alone adult time for himself, right? You know, he's got all these kids. He's very busy. So he has a yurt with very nice furniture in it. And it was the only place for the goat to go. So the goat lived in the yurt for like a week until his sister could come and pick up the goat. Um, And goats, apparently, I didn't know this, are very social. They're They're like pack animals, right? So for this week, every time Bjorn walked by a window, the goat would just be staring at him through the glass because he was lonely. And then, no, this Jen, is so funny. You Wait, I'm not done. Wrote, you just wrote a children's book, though, about a yeah. goat that lives in a yurt. He lives in a yurt. And then Bjorn's sister comes to pick up the goat and takes him back to her ranch. She's quite happy to have this goat. But then he's also lonely at her ranch. And so Bjorn calls her a few days later to say, how's the goat doing? And she's like, oh, I bought him two friends. So there's three of them now. <laughs> so now this goat has the best existence you could ever like imagine. I'm really happy for this goat. <laughs> and he's got a story to tell his friends. Jen, this is a children's book about a lonely goat. In a yurt. In a yurt. <laughs> so funny. Bert the yurt goat. Bert the goat who lives in the year. Listen, I want a co-writing credit. Let's write this together. Okay. I got an email. I got an email Bjorn. Ask him if he'll let me do it. He probably Yeah, will. be like, Bjorn, we have a great idea. <laughs> I already can think of at least two illustrators that would be amazing for this book. Anyway. Uh-oh. Also, the yurt smells like rancid goat now. So Bjorn's son's, you know, thing is he has to disinfect and de-smell it before spring arrives i cannot <laughs> i will say i thought bjorn's son was being responsible <laughs> i'm glad the goat has a good home obviously like that part is beautiful the goat is living with new friends not lonely living it up it, on like this really nice ranch where they don't actually they don't like uh raise animals for slaughter or anything she just has a ranch so he's just hang, gonna hang out yeah. there it's like, it's like one of those hobby farms where people just yeah. like you have beautiful animals. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Um, speaking of goats, I have a question about poems. <laughs> Listen, goats feel very poetic. Um, all animals are. But you have this report card chapter in the book that to me is such an incredible found poem and 
I just want to know kind of how maybe poetry influenced the way you were writing this book. Uh, even if you want to just talk about that chapter, like as we've talked about language and all these other things, but there is a real poetic um, influence on the book overall. But yeah, like when I got to that chapter, I was like, give me more of this. Like, this is such a great way of conveying so much. Um, So yeah, just kind of, if you would enlighten us as to sort of how poetry maybe influenced this book or maybe it didn't. Maybe I'm just imagining that it did. Bert, the goat who lives in a yurt that smells like yogurt was recently the benefactor of a nice t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. I Okay. So what's funny about that report card chapter is people, I've had like three or four different people who've written to me and said like, I love that. They'll talk about like, read your book, loved it. Pro card chapter made me laugh. And I think it has to do with the language that the educational instructors use is a little fucking bullshit. And it's, disingenuous disingenuous so many of my report cards i was like my mom always kept all the like projects i did for school and my report cards and she handed me a folder recently of just like little things and there was like four or five of my report cards and they like like i just i was like these these fuckers i was like they're always striking they're always like having a problem with being teachers. And then like you look at what they actually offer the students they're like in charge of for the year. It's like all that language, which is just like, you know, it's template email, but like not even good. There's spelling mistakes and shit. And <laughs> being like Cody doesn't know about the Cody Cody has little understanding of like the developments of New France. And it's just like that made me laugh un uncontrollably. Well, and the juxtaposition of like the what you have put next to like the lines, the way they're separate, like everything, the way they look on the page, like I think that also obviously adds to the humor, but to the impact too, you know? It's uh yeah, I, I think I don't know. Poetry as like a as like a, a mode I, I I like a lot I don't I've never considered myself a, a poet by any means like formally um but a lot of people when I was in Toronto had a real like they filtered me through poetry and they like oh he's a poet I uh you know he's a poet of Anishinaabe and Portuguese descent <laughs> it's like for me, I always just liked stories and, and rhythm. You know, I, I love, you know, rap music so much. And especially like a rapper who's got a real sense of raggedogio and like the, the, like the combativeness of it is so, it can be so fun to like listen to someone who's really good at it, excel. And obviously there's, you know, uh, not cool stuff about it too or whatever, but I've always had a, a a lot of fun to rhythm and how rhythm can be a kind of like incantatory element to novels and to, um, you know, I, I heard Suzette Mayer read from uh, her book at, in Vancouver, I think. 
and it was just it was just like the Gillerick like thing or whatever. And her her segment, her excerpt was so rhythmically bound and like like exciting. And it's like as a reader, you can unconsciously appreciate that sort of bouncing um, internally within you know also at the end of sentences and finding ways for the rhythm to contradict itself and 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 sort of uh mutate and what does the rhythm mean in terms of this specific moment like if the words that are rhyming are discordant and they're vowel heavy how does that lead to the understanding of the moments in the book and paying attention to that you know um is so fun and I like um, I like a lot of the poets of today. I really like Liz Howard. I really like Phoebe Wong. You know, I, there's so many uh, so many wonderful working poets today um, that are continuing to expand outside of poetry. Like I think Phoebe's working on a book about she's working on essays about boating or um, sailing. Sorry, which I think is so exciting. Like that's such an interesting pivot. You know, um, it's for when a, a writer can like take on a specific topic that they have a connection to. I think that's really beautiful and can be profound. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I never um, have seen myself as a, as a poet per se, though. Okay, we won't call you a poet. <laughs> you can if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Dina loves calling people poets, whether they think they are I or not. do. I'm sick. <laughs> yeah, I've talked about it before. I'm that meme of the, the the person in the window, sickos. That's me all the time. <laughs> Dina's like the only poets. person. She's the only person who calls me a poet, like ever. <laughs> you wrote a fucking incredible book of poetry, and I'll call you a poet. So okay. the end. I, I did write a book of poetry. I just never think of myself as a poet. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Listen, we're all writers, and that's that's the catch-all. Okay, wait, did you say Phoebe's writing a book about sailing? I don't know if it's a full book, but Phoebe sails um, and is part of, like, okay. a team of sailors. That's so and cool. We, she, she took, like, we went out for lunch, and during the summer, like, last summer, um, and she was talking about it and, and what it was like. And it's like a really cool, like, I was like, damn, I want to sign up for this. Like, it seems like a really sweet experience and a great relationship with the water can be built by sailing. And like, I feel like it's really grounding and um, she was writing about it. Um, and I think it wasn't poems. I don't know if it's going to manifest in a book or, or not, but. Um, I was just going to like make a joke. She's the only other Chinese Canadian woman who took sailing lessons. Cause I did too. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> yeah, it was, I was 11 and they had this program with like, they take inner city kids from East Van sailing. And I did it for about six months. I don't remember much, but yeah, I took sailing lessons for free. <laughs> I might add. <laughs> That's stressful to me though, because I know you, don't love to be in the water and you're not no. a strong swimmer Jen that's stressful yeah, I, to me yeah it was it felt really unsafe and yet my parents were like this seems fine <laughs> like, put a life jacket on her she'll be okay <laughs> she gets free sandwiches in this program to make her go sailing oh I mean that is pretty good that's pretty good <laughs> um Jen 
Are you ready mm-hmm. to unleash your yeah. emotions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Please begin. Okay. So the thing is, I have definitely decided. Okay. I'm not sure if this is 100% slam dunk, but I've, I've decided I'm not going to hustle hard for work anymore, which I was doing for a really, really long time. It's partly because I'm in a position now, which is a great uh, privilege that I don't really need to, but also like I'm 46 and I'm really tired. Like I really do feel like I need to go into my twilight years with dignity and grace. Um, and also like, I never wanted to admit this, but I do get tired and burnt out. This is something I rarely admit to anybody except Dina. Um, I was always afraid of like losing work and momentum, but I don't think I care anymore. And I said to my therapist, if I died tomorrow, I think I'm okay with the books I've written. And I'm just gonna like write things as I want to write them. Peaceful mm-hmm. place to be, which is not to say though, that I don't still get like super anxious because I do. And I when if I don't see something on the horizon, I still get anxious about it. But I'm trying to look at the abundance that I already have and retrain my brain not to think too much about scarcity. I sound like a guru now. Please join my cult. <laughs> Wait, does your cult have a name? Tell me more. Um, what should I say? The cult of no hustle. Great, sounds really. That's nice. pretty good. <laughs> sounds good. Okay, I love I that still... for you, and I want that for you. Yeah, I've worked really. I wrote, I wrote a lot of books in like a short period of time, and I'm mm-hmm. like, fuck it, I can do one every five years now and be happy with that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dina, are you ready to rage it up? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, the only time I use my timer, I say this all the time, is for Dina's rage (laughs) minute. Okay, ready? Start. All right, so when one of the main complaints about your workplace is bad communication, and instead of acknowledging and listening to that, making changes, creating more transparency, operating up, offering up information that is essential to workers to do their jobs, to help them make decisions. You, the boss man, obsess over one tiny news story related to the workplace and only communicate about that. All your emails about this fucking human interest story, and that's it for weeks, only emails about human interest story that you claim has gone viral, but actually no one really fucking cares about it and it's going to die in a week and you need to get over it because the interest from that isn't enough to do what you think it's going to do and maybe instead do your job, even though honestly, I have no fucking clue what your job is. Like, please also maybe communicate what that is in all of the meetings that you have. What are those? Are they about the goddamn human interest story? Anyway, that's my current complaint. I'm really mad about it. I could tell from your tweets over the last week you were mad about something like that. It's a really, (laughs) if you know, you know, vibe. And uh, I'm not going to say any more, but listen, just, I don't even know what your fucking job is, except for sending me emails with links to this story. And you are being paid like $160,000 a year. I just want to do a crime. Like, I'm so mad. Join my cult. We'll commit crimes to feed ourselves. So, yeah, um, that's what I had to say. So, everybody, you can find us on Twitter at Cantlet. You can find us 
still on Facebook, if you're emailing us or sending us DMs on Facebook, I probably never see them. Um, so just FYI, I'm not doing that ever, 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 ever. It's There's probably like 60 messages in there. I'm never going to see them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can find us at cantlet.ca. You can rate, review, subscribe. Please give us some new ratings. It really helps people find the show. And you can find me on Instagram at Del Botchery. You can find Jen at Jen Leifer. Cody, where can people find you if you want them to find you on the internet? I'm, I have an Instagram and it's just Cody underscore Catano um, for now. And uh, I have a website that's just uh, CodyCatano.com. And I think that's it. Beautiful. Beautiful. So we now only have one final question for you, which is, Cody, what can't you with right now? I just can't stand the price of my cat's kibble, given that it is the kibble they have to have because one has a bladder issue and Royal Cannon uh, only offers this urinary SO diet at vets who mark the up the shit out of the fucking price of it. So they not only, not only cost a lot, but it also makes them pee a lot. So the litter then is constantly being changed every day, which you should change anyways. But that's what I just came with right now. So you're, you're spending all this money on this kibble and then so much money on litter. It's a vicious cycle. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> I will. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is. What, wait, what are your cat's names again? Louie and Clover. Louie and Clover. We got to see Louie and Clover. They were super cute. Cody, um, send me a picture oh, of, of there these they cats. Are again. Yeah. Send me a picture of these cats and I will let the, I will let the listeners enjoy their beautiful faces. People love the pets of can't live. <laughs> I mean, Rosie yeah. is Instagram famous at this point. She's so Instagram famous. <laughs> oh, also, before we started recording, Cody told us there was a note. Yeah, here it is. Can't let Rosie's Marge voice. So Rosie shouts a lot when I do her voice, and she sounds like Marge Simpson. And she's like, the best. so the new, I told Cody this at Calgary, so the new thing she does is, like, if someone says something that I think Rosie would agree with, I do, I say in Rosie's voice, I know, right? <laughs> she likes us every time. <laughs> and like, and, like, it happens at home constantly. I say that, I know, right? Like, 50 times a day. And yet, no one in my house seems sick of it. They wow. always laugh. Oscar I always laughs. Jeff always laughs. <laughs> they, listen, they're getting quality material, and I'm glad they appreciate it. Yeah, she when she when she doesn't like somebody, she calls them a fuck nuts. So she says, <laughs> "What a fuck nuts!" Like she does it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? We're gonna leave you on that note, fuck nuts. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you yes. so much for listening, Cody. Thank you for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. This Thank was you so much. So wonderful. And everybody, please, if you have not yet, um, go get half bads in white regalia, order it, su- suggest to your library, they bring it in, uh, buy it, do whatever you got to do. Um, you will not regret your choices. 
Like well, I not, might. not that choice, not that yeah, choice anyway. <laughs> that choice, that choice, yeah. Like you might regret, like I'm probably going to eat something really bad right now that's going to not be great for me, but you know what? We're all making choices. <laughs> anyway, bye listeners. We love you. We love you. Mm, you're so great. Okay. Thanks everybody. Bye. bye.